רגע, לפני שמתחילים, אם אתם יכולים, בבקשה, דרגו אותנו באפליקציית הפודקאסטים שלכם. זה מאוד מאוד יעזור לנו להפיץ את הבשורה של הערוץ ליותר אנשים. ממש תודה רבה לכם. פתיח ומתחילים. is an American author, television host, and former speechwriter for then Vice President George H. W. Bush and President Ronald Reagan. In fact, he wrote Ronald Reagan's most important speech, Tear Down the Wall, where Reagan asked General Secretary Gorbachev to take down the Berlin Wall. This might explain the title of his book, How Ronald Reagan Changed My Life. He is a host of Uncommon Knowledge and a research fellow at the Hoover Institution. Coming next, Peter Robinson from Uncommon Knowledge. Hi, and welcome to my channel, The World of Roy Yozovich, when I speak and converse with the most interesting and influential people from all around the world discussing science, philosophy, artificial intelligence, and even religion. If this is your first time on this channel, please consider subscribing, hit the bell button, and be part of this great community. Before we start, many thanks for the Tikva Fund and Mr. Amiad Cohen for this connection. Hi, Peter, and thank you so much for coming to the show. I'm truly excited. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure, Roy. Greetings think... from California. <laughs> okay, great. It's, a, it's, it's marvelous that we can have a conversation and actually see each other from... opposite sides of the planet at exactly the same time yes yes and now it's night in Israel okay question one let's start uh, let's start with a famous speech tear down the wall uh, according right. to your book luck played a very important role in the making of the speech we'll give just two examples one it was just by chance that it was your turn to write a big speech and two the Due to a strange set of events, you were able to hand out the initial draft to the president before the State Department could lay its hand on it. And, and then the president saw the line tear down the wall, circle the line and say, "I want to say exactly this." And my question is, did you ever wonder what if? What do things would turn out differently? Do you think history would take a different a, a different vote? Well, Inside that very good question, there's a little question. Did I ever wonder what if? I wondered what if right until the moment the president delivered the speech. I was such a junior member of the staff that I was not part of the traveling party. I was assigned the speech about two months before the president delivered it. I flew to West Berlin with the part of what we call the advance group, people who were checking out arrangements for the president's trip. I spent the day in West Berlin gathering material. Then I returned to Washington. I drafted the speech. But I was not part of the traveling party that then returned to Europe. The president went to Italy for, it seems to me, it was close to a week before going to Berlin. So I lost the immediate thread of the story, State Department, National Security Council, opposing the speech again and again and again. And then they went to Europe. And in those days, communication was not what it is now. The idea that you and I could speak, you're in Israel, I'm in California, inconceivable. It was communication 
So Europe was more difficult. And if you were traveling with the president, you were expected to use a... Um, a High security. A, 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 that's exactly right. There was this... Exactly. So you had you actually had to wait in line to use the phone. So my boss, the chief speechwriter, Tony Dolan, was part of the traveling party. He was able to call me just once. And he said, I thought you'd be interested to know they're still at it, meaning they were still fighting the speech. So the morning, it was morning in Virginia time, East Coast time, I turned on the little television. They were all little in those days. I turned on the little television in my bachelor apartment in Virginia, just across the Potomac from Washington. And I had no idea whether the president was going to deliver the speech as I had drafted it, the speech that he had looked at, or whether by then the State Department would have substituted another draft, talked him out of it, who knew? And so when you say, did you ever wonder what if, I was wondering what if, right up until the moment he actually delivered those lines tear down this wall. The bigger question, what, what, what might have changed in history? That, that's a question that I've lived with for all these years now, never knowing the answer. And I'll tell you why. Speeches are hard to, the effect of a speech is very difficult to pin down. Um, we know that speeches make an impression on people at the time. Thucydides and his history of the Peloponnesian War includes more than 100 speeches. We know we, we have the great farewell of Moses just before the, the people cross into the promised land. We have and the Gettysburg. Them, and we have the Gettysburg Address. And people recount these things. Moses is right there in the Hebrew Scriptures. His the Gettysburg Address, I memorized that as a school child, as many Americans of my generation did. Now, prove that they mattered. Very, very hard to do. And I've wondered all these years whether it really made any difference. I, I saw, I had a chance to talk about it with Mikhail Gorbachev once. And he said, ah, no, he threw his translator. He said, no, 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 that speech made no difference to us in Moscow. We knew Ronald Reagan was an actor. He needed big lines that it, we ignored it. And then I was at a dinner. This is just a couple of years ago. I don't honestly even know how I got on the guest list, but the guest of honor was Joachim Gauck, who was then the former president of Germany, who at the time of the speech was a Lutheran pastor and anti-communist activist in East Germany. And he said, I think I can quote him exactly. If not, this is just off by a word or two. He said, Ronald Reagan said just the right thing in just the right place at just the right time. And I thought, this was more than 30 years after the speech, I thought to myself, if a man who was involved in the fight against communism inside East Germany, if the speech meant something to him, then I'll settle for it. That I'll take. <laughs> So, so how would history have been different? I don't know, but it seems to be the case that history helped, I don't know, create a kind of space, a new sense of possibility. After hearing that spe speech, people in East Germany were able to say, well, maybe, 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 maybe we can picture a world without a wall, maybe. So that's the way I read it. Would history have been different? I don't know. Which leads me exactly to my uh -huh. next question. 
because in a recent conversation you had with Andrew Roberts on his podcast, you say, quote, yeah, he wanted so much to say, Peter Ronson, you say, quote. <laughs> <laughs> Now we can say back, okay, we, we, had, we had made an intellectual concession. It was a very serious concession without even realizing what intellectual ground we had ceded. This is the way I read it now. And Ronald Reagan, and Ronald Reagan mind just didn't walk that way, end quote. And the concession was that the, com- that the communist world is here to stay forever. Ronald yes. Reagan used to say, here is my strategy on the Cold War, we win, they lose. And my question is, and I have a double question here, in your opinion, why did you then think like that? Why did even you as a conservative Republican part of the Reagan administration thought like that? And two, in your opinion, again, why was Reagan different? And how does it relate to his ability as an actor to anticipate alternative endings? Why did I find myself thinking from time to time this, this great temptation that the Soviet Union was permanent? Uh, it's something pretty deep in human nature, I think. Again, I'm giving you the benefit to the extent that it is a benefit of having thought about it for a long, long time. But human beings shrink from conflict. The notion of confronting the Soviets at the moral level, calling them an evil empire, that was frightening in itself because it seemed to suggest confronting them At a military level as well it didn't that was part of the genius of Reagan it didn't but it seemed to so people shrank for all these many years it was more comfortable thinking they were there and he were we were here and we didn't have to fight them terribly hard we just had to manage the relationship that was a comfortable thought I believe what made Reagan different I have thought about that I over and over again over the years let me give you a different compare let me compare him to a different figure because it may be easier to say to see my analysis if correct applies here and it and it it's maybe easier to see but I'll come to Reagan in a moment Winston Churchill becomes president president he becomes prime minister in 1940 France has fallen of course the Germans are are on the march and France has fallen. And his second problem is Hitler. His first problem is the British establishment. His first problem is giving people who understandably, after all they had suffered in the First World War, giving people who had convinced themselves that appeasement was the only rational approach, giving them an entirely new way to think about it The struggle in which they found themselves Churchill first had to move his own nation then he could take on Hitler okay I believe Reagan was in very much the same position first he had to move his own people and the way Reagan did that the politics of the United States are somewhat different from those of Britain Reagan brought the middle of the country with him. And the establishment always lagged even the Republican establishment even the foreign policy professor always lagged. when you say middle you mean majority I mean majority I mean okay. ordinary Americans 
And, and so I'm coming now to what made him different and what made Reagan different. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm going to be able to explain this terribly well, but I think I'm onto it. What made him different was that he was so American. And here's what I mean by that. He was such an you ordinary. Explain. <laughs> all right. He was such an ordinary American. He grew up in the, in the, in the American heartland in the Midwest in small towns in the Midwest. <clears throat> and now consider his career. He goes to a small college, again in the Midwest. He then becomes a radio announcer, a sports announcer, again in the Midwest. So he's using a popular medium, talking to ordinary people, attracting ordinary listeners. He goes to Hollywood. As I recall, I, I may get the numbers wrong, but in the first three years, he made 17 pictures in Hollywood. It was a popular medium. Those of us who love movies sometimes start talking about movies as this is if it were a high art form, and it can be, but that's not the, the movie industry Ronald Reagan was in. He used to say they didn't want them good. They wanted them Thursday, meaning they were in the business of turning out product. Then he leaves film and becomes a representative for General Electric. And what does he do? Does he go to Wall Street and try to, no, he goes to General Electric factories and he talks to the workers at General Electric. Final point, while he was president, he wrote about 8,000 letters. Overwhelmingly, these letters are to ordinary Americans. His, uh, the woman in charge of the White House correspondence, he asked her, a woman called Ann Higgins, who died some years ago, um, he asked her to pull together a few letters each week that would be representative of what people, ordinary Americans were thinking. She would give him a dozen letters, half a dozen, a dozen letters. He would take them to Camp David and he would answer them. So you see, so a dentist in Moline attacks the Reagan economic program. And a week later, he gets a handwritten response explaining the Reagan economic program. And it's signed sincerely, Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan. <laughs> Ronald Reagan. So this is not a man who's thinking in terms of the faculty lounge at Harvard University. He's all his life, he's thinking in terms of ordinary Americans, ordinary voters. So the State Department says, what do you mean you can't say tear down this wall? But they're saying it to a man who in 1980 carried 44 out of 50 states, and in 1984 carried 49 out of 50 states. He had the people with him. I I I I don't want to compare, but as an Israeli coming from a very uh, different perspective, it it seems like Donald Trump is more American than Barack Obama. Do I get it right, or, or just I just I'll tell you, I of course you know perfectly well that by you mentioning the two words Donald Trump, you're you're inviting me to follow you into a minefield. And I'm not entirely sure, Roy, as okay, much no, as no, I no, love okay, you. No, 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 sure no, 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 okay, no, but, no, but, 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 but. Yeah. here's, here's, here's where, here's where the, yeah, the answer is yes, the comparison is valid up to a point and beyond that point, I won't go, but here's where the comparison is valid. Barack Obama progressives tell us over and over again that they love America and I don't mean to gainsay them. But if you listen to them and watch them, you begin to get the feeling that the America they love is the America in their heads. It's the America that they will love 
once they change the country to fit their idea of what America ought to be. Ronald Reagan had all kinds of reforms he wanted to make, but he began by loving the country as it was. The staff discovered that it was hard to get his attention when he was in the limousine. Why was that? Because he kept looking out the window, waving at people. It was difficult to get him to hold a serious conversation or briefing or this in the airplane, Air Force One. It was a smaller plane in those days because he loved just looking out the window and watching the American landscape roll past. Donald Trump is the same kind of figure. He loves New York. He loves McDonald's food. <laughs> he he loves, loves traveling to the middle of the country. Now he's a complicated figure. And, oh no 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 no. Okay okay. Reservations. But but yes yes his his tastes are largely and and I will say this is one of the puzzles about Donald Trump. He was born pretty wealthy and became extremely rich, and he went to an Ivy League school. He went to Penn. He had a lot of years in which to turn himself into a Manhattan sophisticate, and he never did. He built building after building. He lives in that gold, strange gilded apartment high above Manhattan, and he's still a guy from Queens. He's an ordinary guy from Queens. I'm still Jenny from the block. And uh, <laughs> you, had, you had Benjamin, you interview Bibi, Benjamin Netanyahu, the Prime Minister of Israel. Just a very, a very short answer. Would you consider Bibi to have the same qualities as As a being an Israeli like Reagan was an American or or do you perceive it as a it was very distant from the people just how how did you perceive it when were you interview Netanyahu well it, it, it the first thing I have to say is that of course I'm not I'm not an Israeli I, I just I I have to say I can't judge it in the same way but here BB Netanyahu, whom I was meeting for the first time. We spent a total of perhaps two hours together. He has a very easy manner. I found him extremely easy to talk to. He was like Reagan in that regard. He made sure that I felt at ease. He told a couple of jokes. Just that level of human connection that you feel some people have it. Some political figures are able to walk into a room and make sh- look at, put people at ease. Phoebe has that. And then the other... aspect of it where BB shared a certain trait of Reagan is that again Reagan well let me put it this way he used to say when he was in the movie business he wasn't interested in what the critics wrote he was interested in box office were people going to see the movies BB is very clearly understands that he's got to he has to carry Israel with him Israel is a much more complicated much more complicated place in some ways although much smaller than the United States but I had the feeling of a man who understood that he has that he in some ways he has to talk past a certain group of elites intellectuals and he has to carry ordinary Israelis. And that struck me that, that I, I recognize that pattern. Is This that a is fair great. answer? Yeah, yeah, yes, okay. definitely. Which leads me again, great to the next question, because during your glorified career and uh, still ongoing, 
in Uncommon Knowledge, you had the opportunities to speak with two geniuses. And Tom Sowell is just one example. If you want, if you just write Thomas Sowell, you get Uncommon Knowledge. How do you think these guys are different from the rest of us? How do these geniuses think differently in your perspective after speaking with so many of them? All right. Well, I'll tell you. Uh, may I talk about two in particular? Uh, you mentioned Tom Sowell. And you're too young to remember this figure. And Christopher Hitchens. Christopher Hitchens. I'm going to leave Christopher aside okay. because he's different. Milton Friedman. Milton oh. was an old man by the time I knew him. His office was just down the hall from mine, by the way. But I did have him on Uncommon Knowledge two or three times. And here is what Milton Friedman, two basic traits that Milton Friedman and Tom Sowell shared. Share. Tom is still with us, of course. Tom Sowell, at the age of 92, has a new book coming out in June. There you go. I'll, I'll come to that in a moment. Um, in the first place, neither Tom Sowell nor Milton Friedman really cares who you are. They don't care about status or rank. Tom Sowell once said to me, I can't honestly remember whether this was on camera or off. The best thing about Harvard education is that you don't Ex need to be afraid. I loved, I quoted this yes, phrase yes, in my yes. book due to yes. you. Okay, okay, that's exactly... The, the, the best the, the best thing about having a Harvard degree is that you never again have to be intimidated by somebody with a Harvard degree. <laughs> this if is a Milton Friedman. I saw M M Milton Friedman, if an undergraduate asked an interesting question, everything stops. And Milton Friedman answers that question. And if a colleague with three PhDs says something foolish, Milton just cuts him down. It just doesn't care who rank makes no difference to either one of them. That I always found impressive. The other piece of it, well, the I'll I'll, make, I'll name two other factors for Milton Friedman and Tom Sowell both. Their work is not a game. For many intellectuals, there's a the game aspect. I publish this in a journal, and then I get tenure, and then I get the good opinion of my peers, and at some level, the work. The work becomes a kind of very sophisticated intellectual game. They become, they begin living in their heads, the models in their heads, in economics especially. The models in their heads become, oh, so-and-so said something or other at that conference. I have to rebut it. Okay. For Milton Friedman and Tom Sowell, it was not a game. Milton grew up during the Depression. He lost his father when he was very young, and he said he went into economics. He... Uh, 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 his mentors when he, he was he was very good at math and he had mentors who urged him to go into statistics and he said no, he wanted to go into economics because the overwhelming question of the day was how do we what happened and how do we make sure this never happens again the depression it mattered he understood he experienced real poverty and tom Sowell, who grows up in harlem and he said is I think his first and early job was as a delivery boy, telegrams for Western Union, and he'd go around Manhattan delivering telegrams. So he'd take the bus from Harlem down to Manhattan. He'd come out of the poor neighborhoods and into rich neighborhoods. And he wanted to know why that was, what happened. Marx began, Marx offered the first answer. Then, of course, he 
he turned on Marx, but again, it wasn't a game. He understood poverty. He wanted to know what worked. Okay, may I make one, one more comparison? Because I mentioned that Tom Sowell at the age of 92 has a book coming out. I think it's in June. You can already see it on Amazon. It's being advertised on Amazon. Here's a story. Milton Friedman died, I think Milton was 93 or 94. The Wall Street Journal published a column by him in his honor the day after he died. And I thought, that's interesting. I don't remember when it first appeared. I must have missed it. So I called the editor of the editorial page, who was a friend. At that time, the editor was a friend of mine. I was, actually, they're still friends, but different person now. And I said, when did this first, I'm just curious, when did this first appear? And he said, it first appeared today. No. <laughs> yes, because Milton Friedman, into his 90s, he was working on a major paper on monetary policy in Japan. And Milton was following the rule that he followed all his academic life, which was, first you make the academic finding and you argue the case in the academy, but you're not done yet. We live in a democracy. You're not done until you explain your case to ordinary laymen. And so and this Milton is why was working- he did so, so many uh, public lectures. Exactly, public, public lectures. His, he was a columnist in Newsweek for, magazine for many years, the uh, series Free to Choose, the television series Free to Choose. He felt a real obligation to speak to his fellow citizens, to bring his to bring to bring his neighbors along, so to speak. Both of them are that way, Milton and Tom Sowell. You know, you speak and I try, you know, to picture some of your other guests and say, mm, you know, I think this also applies to them. I don't want to mention Christopher Hitchens right now, but I think that it wasn't a game for him. He, he was totally immersed. Well, it wasn't the... a game except conversation was his form of entertainment, though. So there were <laughs> moments with Christopher when he was definitely playing games, when he was most definitely playing games. But Christopher was a believer. Uh, he and I believe different things. We did, I, I, I think it could. I think I can say if there's a rule, if there's a kind of uh, almost a ratio or formula here, I have never disagreed with a man that I liked more than, than Christopher. Christopher. Yes, exactly. exactly. Okay. Now I consider myself. I I I listen on on YouTube. I, I watch many uncommon knowledge uh, hours, and again, due to uncommon knowledge, I bought. I told you in our last conversation, uh, Righteous Indignation by Breibart and many other books that I, you know, just got to uh, be familiar with thanks to you. And that's, I a lot of guys who, that's a lot of guys who owe me money. I should have royalties <laughs> on this. Something, something. I'm missing something here, Roy. But go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, you know what happened to him. <laughs> you, you don't know. What... <laughs> he was killed. Okay. Nevertheless, uh, my question, I want, I think I consider myself like the new uh, young version of uncommon knowledge in some, in some aspect. Okay. It is not Are you telling me that aspect. you're having me on the air right now to let me know that you're elbowing me out? Uh, unfortunately, no. Unfortunately, <laughs> no. Unfortunately, no. But I want to ask you, I want to uh, get some tips and I wrote them. So... First, in your mind, uncommon knowledge is in, is about interviews or conversations. And if you don't know the uh, difference, 
it is how much the host speaks. Oh, uh, well, I like to think of it as conversations. I like to think of it as conversations. And, and the way I distinguish interviews from conversations in my mind is not how much the host thinks. Conversations suggest not how much the host speaks. The, the way you put it, it almost sounds as though in an interview, the host asks a question and gets out of the way. And I do that on many shows. But even at that, I like to think of it as not a formal interrogation, but a conversation in the sense that I really would like to know what every guest thinks. And to, I'd like to hear every guest put his case, even when I disagree with the case, I'd like to hear him put his or her case as well as he possibly can. I want to hear my guest make his own best case. And to do that, you and I'd I also would like viewers and listeners to get us some sense of the person. I hope that on uncommon in, in a strict or formal interview, there's some notion in which you're just you're getting the positions, you're getting the answers. And in uncommon knowledge, I also I don't want the positions or the answers divorced from the personality. Definitely. Uh, I don't I don't know whether this is a high aim or a low aim, but that's where I've ended up. You know, I my low aim or high aim, I don't know, was to I want you to explain me your thesis. And I speak with many scientists like hardcore phys uh, physicists, mathematicians, uh, artificial intelligence, computer science, this guy. I want you to explain me your work like we are sitting in a bar and you need to explain on a napkin. Okay, so I. I it is not a lecture. It's a conversation that I want you to convey. Yes, something. yes, yes. Now, how do you prepare the questions? Because you wrote, I think, in your book that he, uh, uh, Ronald Reagan had 14 speechwriters, but all of the speeches were his. You were yes, delivering. That's right. That's right. The, and I think that even if you have someone who writes the questions, it is Peter, a Peter Robinson question. Do you get my point? Uh, I get your point. It's the first time I'm thinking of it in quite that way. I prepare. You and I were talking for a moment or two just before you began recording this. Let me repeat that because you said you said to me you you sh you showed me your questions and you said I'm very prepared, and that's because all I have is questions. I'm not a famous person. Well, same here. When I started Uncommon Knowledge. It was just, it was here at the Hoover Institution. We felt that we needed some video product, some video offering. William F. Buckley, who's my great hero and friend, was still on the air with Firing Line. And people would watch Firing Line to see Bill. He was such a brilliant, fascinating character. And I knew nobody's going to tune in to see me. Either I ask good questions or I've got nothing. So I prepare. And unfortunately, it's become a habit. I can't seem to break. I prepare pretty hard. I spend, if a show lasts an hour, there's some multiple of that hour. It's always plural, hours that I put into the preparation. I always always yes almost always sorry go ahead yeah just a second let me give you a concrete example david berlinski stephen meyer and david galanter all of them each one of them wrote a massive tome uh, 
Steve Meyer wrote, you know, with a signature in 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 the cell. It's a heavy tone. It's not an yes, easy it read. It's not no, an it's easy not read. <laughs> yeah, so it's as easy as Steve could make it. I don't want him to feel, but but it's the material is very dense and difficult. Yes, yes, exactly. Especially if you have a mind like mine, I'd rather read. Uh, I'd rather read five plays by Shakespeare than one treatise on mathematics by David Galerner, although I love David Galerner. So yeah, so that show in particular, I don't know how many hours, but that was, uh, that was a lot of hours that I prepared for that show. Because uh, this was a brilliant interview, you know, and you start with Galerner and then move here and then move to Bebrinke. It, it's like, you know, you stitches everything and it became... Something, you know, I think one of your latest interview was about uh, the existence of God with uh, John Locks, I think. I, I, I don't remember. John Lennox. John, John Lennox. John Lennox. John Lennox, Stephen Meyer, and who was, and um, John Lennox, Stephen Meyer, and Michael Behe. Yes, Michael this Behe. This was a beautiful piece. It wasn't an interview. It was a, it was a beautiful piece. Do you get my point? Well, not only do I get your point... I, I I don't want to cut you off. You're saying such sweet things. I'm going to requ- make my kids listen to this. Now, now one... Keep talking. Last... You're doing fine. <laughs> okay. You just keep talking. Okay. How many people are in the studio? Because let's... let's uh, sometimes you do it in, uh, in Florence, but sometimes it seems like you are alone. And the only place that I saw that, wow, there is a staff where in the Jordan Peterson interview, he didn't speak to you. He spoke to... Yes. To yes. all of them, yes. So that's kind of, you, you met, how many people are in in an ordinary shoot? Three cameras, the producer, director, there's somebody on makeup, there are a couple people on lights. So it's a fairly big production. What would it be? Seven, eight, nine people all together. Um, I say fairly big. I mean, that that's... In, in the old days when the equipment was much bigger and more finicky and more difficult to handle, it would have been more people. I'm But that's about how many people are there. This is just, It's just two you. right now. It's just two of us. Okay. All right. Um, Jordan Peterson, there are, I have done interviews in front of an audience and there has always, that has always involved some sort of special request. Jordan Peterson came to Stanford to speak to a certain audience and they asked if I could introduce interview him and so I did I don't like that I I'm telling you I, a little secret I especially saw it. if I, I saw it I saw you it. see that yes, Because, and, yes and the I reason saw it. the reason is exactly what you identified which is I lose the guest the guest starts talking to the larger audience and I'll tell you if you've got a If in particular you've got a politician I can mention one uh, I, I can mention a number of them but this I don't I don't want to start a fight but one of them has now retired Rick Perry governor of Texas we started out with chairs on a stage facing each other and I asked him a question and he gave the answer and the audience he said something amusing and the <laughs> audience chuckled and he's he and he's a politician he responded And by within five minutes, he had shifted the chair. It drove the camera guy crazy because the angles had all been very carefully set up. And I lost him. Perry would turn to me. He'd get, I'd ask a question. And he would just use that as a point of departure 
for playing the audience. Well, of it course, he's a professional politician, but I lost. I didn't. When I have an, I want to be face to face. And you know why? Because it's the way you're handling me right now. If I go on too long, there's something in your eyes I can see. If it's really too long, you raise a hand. The body language is important. Because I'm very polite, although I'm in Israel. This is very important. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Anyway, so nobody cares about this except people like you and me who do this for a living. And there aren't that many of us. But by Peter, I, I saw actually... it. I saw it at the, at the Jordan yes. Peterson interview where the people and, and it started with the prime minister of Canada. And, 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 and then I saw it that you didn't like it. And this is why I asked, because it... You could see that, ooh, I should have... That, that was it wasn't an uncommon it. knowledge. It wasn't yeah, an uncommon yeah. knowledge thing. Yeah, I ask him a question, and off he goes to the audience. I, I have him only for a moment, and then I lose him. Anyway, you get the picture. Could you give me... It's not a, my favorite. Hmm? Could you Go give ahead. me, like, a, a, a tip regarding my interviews? Because, again, I don't want to have politicians on the show. Recently, I asked a very famous Israeli scientist to come on the show, and he told me, you have a very nice show. You, you talk with many prestigious people, and you have very interesting conversations, but you don't have many women. Therefore, therefore, I won't come. I won't come to your show. And I, many oh, people really? say, you know, you uh, you teach at a real university, a real university as in the settlements, therefore, I won't come. And I think that, you know, in the progress thing, I get the therefore, you are not my cup of tea, but oh, you are not exactly my cup of tea. Therefore, I won't come. Did, did it ha ever happen to you? That has not happened. That has not happened. Um, thank goodness. No, I honestly don't quite know what you, well, you know, just keep rolling. You're doing fine. If they won't come, yes. go on to the next, go on to the next. Though, by the way, the, those criticisms strike, both strike me as absurd. If there is anything, well, I won't go into it, but, but both of those strike me as absurd. Um, yeah, definitely. By the I way, mean, it's, it's like- you, you, take, the, you take the leading people in their field, Condi Rice happens to be a woman. But that's not why I have her on. She comes on because she knows what, she has a views about Ukraine. And uh, uh, all right, we, we don't need to go into that. Definitely. On and on and on, okay. Still, yeah. So uh, first of all, thank you so much for your time. It was a true pleasure. I learned so <laughs> much throughout the years from Uncommon Knowledge and your questions. And I, you know, trying to be in your shoes. And uh, thank you so much for your time and the opportunity speaking with you. I ask Complete my guests. Pleasure. I ask my guest all uh, always two final questions. One, can you give me a book that you uh, read in the last five to ten years and said, "Wow, this changed my way of thinking." Just one book that you can mention. I'll give you a book that I read just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, It's called The Peacemaker, Ronald Reagan, The Cold War, and the World on the Brink. It's by a young historian called William Inboden, I-N-B-O-D-E-N. -E you can find it on Amazon. And I did, I was so impressed by this book that I interviewed William Inboden, although these interviews haven't gone up yet. And here's why I was impressed. 
it's it does Ronald Reagan justice. It understands his the importance of Ronald Reagan in the Cold War, and it also gets it gets the importance of his faith and of his imagination. Reagan, by contrast, would say to name one, Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon is constantly making fine calculations. You have the feeling that there are tumblers always turning in his mind. And Reagan didn't think that way. Reagan thought thought in terms of, honestly, of, of right and wrong. And he also somehow intuitively grasped the open-endedness of history. Everybody thought the Soviet Union was going to be there for another century. And Reagan somehow grasps, no, that isn't necessarily the case. History is more open-ended than that. William Inboden gets all of that in The Peacemaker. Like Reagan wasn't, wasn't an Ivy League genius. He was a statementship genius. Very different from Barack Obama, for example. Now, did you learn anything new from the book? Because, you know, you, you wrote a book about Ronald Reagan. Well, I did learn a lot of a lot new from the book, and I discussed this with, with William Inboden. Why did he write this book now? And the answer is that new material has is always being released. And um, so he has a lot of new material on the and what is so striking, well, the attack on Ronald Reagan at the time and for many, many years thereafter, even today in many quarters, can be summed up by, The former Secretary of Defense Clark Clifford who said Reagan is an amiable dunce he's a lovely man he's likable but somebody else must be pulling the strings he's not up to this job himself and there have been a number of as years have gone by that argument has become unsustainable the first attack on the argument Reagan's long gone at this stage was the book Reagan in his own hand in which he It was demonstrated because we have photocopies these 8,000 letters that he wrote large portions of speeches that he wrote in his own hand radio addresses before he became president that he wrote in his own hand the New York Times was so stunned by the discovery that Ronald Reagan could read and write that they dedicated a cover story on the Sunday Times magazine to the publication of this book all right so the The more we learn, if you look at Ken Adelman wrote a book on Reykjavik, the Reykjavik summit, 1986. And by then, the notes had been declassified. And what you see is that Mikhail Gorbachev gets the Nobel Prize. Everybody, he, he, he's gone now, but everybody, what a, that man was a genius. You may disagree with Cut. But what you see is Ronald Reagan holding his own. point by point, counterpoint by counterpoint, argument by argument, he sits there and holds his own with Mikhail Gorbachev. All right. And will Inboden, one decision after another, one important decision after another, is Reagan. It's not Cap Weinberger. It's not George Shultz, although both were great men and both contributed in all kinds of ways. But the critical decisions, Reagan was in charge of his own administration. And you see that at a level of detail in the William Inboden book, of which I was, even I wasn't aware at the time. Well, I was such a junior speechwriter, but still, uh, it, 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 it informed me at a level of detail that I wasn't aware of. Wow, this is so true. 
up until this interview, when I got prepared and I had to read your, your book and your interviews, I didn't know nothing about Reagan. In fact, if you write Ronald Reagan on YouTube in Hebrew, the first two or three uh, videos are Ronald Reagan anti-communist jokes. This is what you get <laughs> on Hebrew. Okay. I well, kid you not. Okay. So thanks to you, I also learned about Ronald Reagan. And last question is... Uh, This channel was all about productivity and you managed to do so many things in so different aspects, a part of a fellow, a, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution. Do you have like just one single tip for productivity? Productivity. Oh my Lord. I, yeah, I've spent my whole life just trying to hit my deadlines. that's that's I haven't I, I haven't actually no actually I'll I, I, I tell a friend got me onto this this is going to sound totally crazy no it won't sound totally crazy but it'll sound a little crazy or a little surprising maybe this is something I've discovered just recently there's a website called optimal work optimal work and it it's a psychologist who has you Who adapts the findings of cognitive behavioral psychology and by the way I am a deep skeptic of all things psychological so, I mean acad- Freud please don't start uh, and he he shows how to organize an hour of work it's tremendously helpful latest late as I've discovered in my in my life I've, it's tremendously helpful I can actually recommend that particularly to students and Who are trying to balance all kinds of things in high school or university optimal you walk you walk with optimal walk this is a where it is you walk with it yes you walk yes. with it yes I use it every single day every single day yes okay so I learned I learned something new Peter Robinson uncommon knowledge so many things uh, to speak with you thank you so much for your time it was a true pleasure Roy my pleasure. Take care of Israel for us. Okay, <laughs> thank you. אם הגעתם עד לכאן, מגיע לכם כל הכבוד. אז תנו לי להגיד לכם שלושה דברים קצרים. הדבר הראשון, אם שמעתם משהו בשיחה שמעניין אתכם, שאתם רוצים לקחת הלאה, פשוט ספרו אותו לאנשים אחרים. משהו מעניין שאני אמרתי, משהו מעניין שהאורח שלי אמר, איזשהו רעיון שאתם רוצים לקחת אתכם לחיים, פשוט ספרו אותו לחבר או לחברה. זאת הדרך הטובה ביותר לזכור את הרעיונות מתוך השיחות האלה. הדבר השני, אם אתם רוצים לקחת חלק בקהילה שלנו ולפגוש ולדבר עם אנשים כמוכם, אתם מוזמנים לערוץ הטלגרם שלנו, שווה לכם מאוד. פשוט תראו עוד אנשים שמתעניינים מדברים מגניבים בדיוק כמוכם. והדבר האחרון, אם אתם יכולים, דרגו את הערוץ שלנו באפליקציית הפודקאסטים שלכם, זה יכול להיות בספוטיפיי, באפל פודקאסט או בגוגל פודקאסט, זה תהליך קצר של שתי שניות, הוא מאוד מאוד יעזור לנו להפיץ את הבשורה הלאה. שיהיה לכם כיף גדול וכיף בשיחה הבאה.